This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 168. And today I sat down with Allison Kane, the founder and CEO of Haven's Kitchen. Haven's Kitchen makes better for you, better for the planet, flavor shortcuts for modern home cooks. Launched out of a beloved cooking school in New York City in 2018, their first product is a line of fresh, squeezable sauces sold in over 2,500 doors across the U.S., Allison shares her story from growing up in New York City as an only child, riding the subway by herself at 10 years old, to working for an urban development company after college, to having five children in just eight years and starting a cooking school in 2012, which led to the idea to create fresh, delicious sauces to help people feel great about cooking. She talks about her experience in getting into Whole Foods, velocity versus distribution, and why listening too much isn't always a good thing. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Allison, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Haven's Kitchen. How are you? Hi, Lee. I'm good. Thank you. It's a beautiful, warm day in New York, so can't complain. And it's cloudy here in LA. I can't believe your weather is better than ours right now. That's crazy. <laughs> what am I paying the sunshine tax for? Seriously. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I have a funny thing. My daughter lives in LA, and when LA people ever complain about the weather, I'm like, eh uh-uh. <laughs> not allowed. Exactly. Not allowed. Beautiful 99.9% of the time. And we exactly. love to complain about the point. I know. It's a little windy. I'm like, you're going to be just fine. We're like, it's cold. <laughs> it's 70 degrees, not exactly. 75. Yeah. Literally. So I can't wait to hear your story. Where are you from originally? I know you're in New York right now. Did you grow up there? I did. I grew up here. And shockingly to a lot of people, my mother grew up here too. There are so many New Yorkers that are transplants from other places, and I'm one of like the, you know, born and bred with a mother who was born and bred. Wow. So, it's like New a generational thing. Absolutely. I'm unreasonably committed to New York City, I would say, and one of those people that doesn't thrive particularly well outside of New York City. Right. There, it's a rare breed. You know, I was at a bar the other night with my husband and we on the menu, literally there was a drink. Well, there's two. There was one called the ex-wife for 250K, which is hilarious to have oh, on that's the menu. Yeah. Very funny. Right. Yeah. And then it said polite New Yorker NA, like not. not. <laughs> okay. So I just want to say, I know we're here to talk about the business and everything, 
But I do, in my unreasonable New Yorkiness, have thoughts about that, which is that native New Yorkers are very polite. I we agree love our with city. You. We love to give directions. We like to give up our seats to people, you know, who may need them on public transportation. I feel that when people move here and they think they need to take on a certain persona of like New Yorker, that's the rudest. Those are the people that like bristle and make faces and like elbow people and they're rude. Native New Yorkers, we just want people to stay and to love and to spend their money here because we need it. Yeah, you yeah. Know? You know, I have so, to say polite mm-hmm. is probably the wrong word for that menu. When I saw it, I was like, I lived in New York for 10 years. I don't think polite, like, it's, I don't think they're not polite. They're just right. upfront and direct. Yeah. There's like that expression about, sorry to all of the Californians out there. It's such a generalization, but it's that like, if you, you know, get a flat tire, Californians will be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that you got a flat tire and drive by. But a New Yorker will be like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like, why were you driving and like you got a flat tire, but they'll help. <laughs> right. That's funny. I'm not sure if it's true entirely, but. So yeah. what was the like growing up in the city and as a kid? What kind of things were you into? What was childhood like? Well, I grew up in the 70s in New York City, which was on the verge of bankruptcy and severely impacted by a lot of, you know, the oil crisis and a lot of the economic turmoil that was going on, which was also political and social turmoil, obviously, of the 70s. So I grew up in a in a pretty amazing place. My friends, you know, their parents were doctors and sculptors and speechwriters and photographers. And it wasn't all finance all day. In my youth, I mean, that ended up being what my family did. So I was a little embarrassed by that, honestly. We were super latchkey. No one knew where we were. There was no such thing as a cell phone, obviously. We were taking public transportation when we were 10. You know, yeah. it, it was like a by yourself. Little, yeah. That's what I had to ask. I was like, by yourself, right? No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, after basketball practice in sixth grade, you know on 98th street, you know, just hopping on the six train and it was gritty, but it was really creative. And I think I was just able to, I was an only child and I didn't have a lot of rules or structure around me and none of my friends really did. So we kind of grew up as a little pack of, you know, friends that served as each other's family in a way. And I had imaginary friends and imaginary worlds and kept myself super busy, you know, taught myself how to cook when I was eight. So you had to be super independent at an early age, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it was a definite like survive situation. Is that because your parents worked a lot? So you had to kind of take care of yourself or where does that come from? Why were you so independent so early? I've done a lot of like research into the Gen X brain and there is a lot of sort of our parents, um, you know, my mother had just come out of a, a massive women's liberation movement, which was ongoing at the time. But the idea that she was somehow supposed to be home and, you know, cooking and cleaning was just it was, it was like abhorrent. You know, I think 
the flip side of that was being the child in that scenario. I didn't necessarily get the nurturing. They hadn't quite figured out, well, who is going to fill the gap? (laughs) Like, take care of the children, you know, but... So you're so, saying your mom was kind of like rebelling against it because it's what her mom had to do. So she was 100%. like, I'm not going to be that at home no. mom who's cooking, cleaning, taking care of the kids. And then the father's like, well, I'm not changing not my, my either. lifestyle either. Right. So <laughs> we were all just kind of like, yeah, OK. And and the reality is, is that, you know, we didn't have 24 seven media telling everyone how scary and terrifying the world was at that point. So, you know, arguably it was much more dangerous back then than it is now. But that sort of hovering over kids really didn't start happening until after 9-11, which again is sort of interesting. So I think it was a combination of the era, you know, this sort of self-actualization that was, you know, the sort of mantra of the 70s, you know, self-love, be you, figure out, you know, who that is, both from like for the parents and the kids. New York was just a place that had a lot of independent, free-spirited people and creatives. And then, you know, again, being an only, you know, I had to just be responsible for my own fun most of the time. Right. Entertaining yourself, finding ways to keep busy. And yeah, that's interesting. And so what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were younger, looking back? Um, and also anything entrepreneurial that sticks out as you reflect on your childhood? Yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely, in retrospect, I can sort of connect the dots to what I'm currently doing. Obviously, I didn't know that this was, you know, owning a cooking school and then launching a, a line of packaged goods wasn't like, that's what I want to do when I was seven. But I knew I wanted a big family. I knew I wanted cooking and food to be a part of my life because it gave me so much joy from a very early age. I knew that I wanted to teach because I was always really good at breaking down things and explaining them in ways that made sense to people, which is kind of an interesting thing to know about yourself early. In terms of entrepreneurship, I was always, you know, I had like lemonade stands and I would go through all of my, you know, closets and bookshelves and sell everything, you know, much to my parents, like chagrin, you know, they'd come home and I'd be like, I made, you know, a hundred dollars and I sold everything I own. And they'd be like, well, you know, that's a bummer. We didn't really think you'd do that, actually. Exactly. (laughs) I made, you know, smelly stickers by spraying, you know, perfume onto stickers and, you know, things like that. And it turns out I was always, I wouldn't necessarily say entrepreneurial, but I was very industrious. Um, And it all does sort of make sense. Those were sort of like the key indicators, I think, of what I wanted as an adult. And so what were your first few jobs as a teenager and going into college? Yeah. I mean, I babysat a lot in high school. Part of the fun of living in an apartment building with lots of little kids is that you just go and you hang out and you get paid for doing it. And that was really cool. You know, there was a cute boy who lived across the hall of these, like this family of three little girls that I got to babysit and like every once in a while he'd pop over. And so that was that was good times. I did a lot of that. In college, I worked at a canoe rental company for a half a minute, which 
doesn't really count, but I think it's sort of funny. I worked in a dried flower store. You know, I had sort of very, you know, interny type of jobs until I went into urban development right after college. And that's when I got to have a really cool experience working on this like city-state partnership, redeveloping Times Square and 42nd Street in New York City. Again, it's just sort of combining my love of New York and sort of understanding how ecosystems work with humans and if you create spaces that people love, what happens then? And what happens if you move this group of people in? What happens to that group of people? You know, understanding that everything's connected and and trying to solve a bunch of different problems for a bunch of different stakeholders at the same time. was It was really fun. That sounds awesome. So you went to Duke. I think you studied history. It sounds like you came back home to the city to study, uh, work in urban development. And what happened after that? After that, I had five children very wow. rapidly. So you yeah. did have the big family. Yes, I did. So KPI number one, check. I got married really early. We'll have another podcast to discuss all of that. Had five children within eight years. I left urban planning to go and teach nursery school because I thought, again, that's a good thing to do when you're raising small children and was very quickly sort of overwhelmed with I don't think I can balance all of this. So took myself out of the sort of professional workplace for a while. And then when my youngest son started nursery school, I went back to get a master's in food systems and food studies, thinking I would go back into, you know, public health or something along that urban development sort of line. That didn't happen. I ended up making all these connections between cooking and all the things that I had sort of grown up loving, food and cooking and, you know, gardening and all of that. And personal health, community health, environmental health, you know, farm labor practices, all of that stuff. And so everything kind of came together for me. And that's when I opened a cooking school in 2012. And that's what I did for a long time. Cooking school. Okay. So you went to NYU to study food studies, right? Um, You got your master's and then you decided during that time to start a cooking school. How do you do that? Like, (laughs) yeah. So uh, going back to sort of your original question about the things that I loved and that gave me joy, I loved cooking and always, and I love teaching cooking always. So, you know, the minute that I could, I started having people over and teaching them how to make salmon or how to, you know, make chicken or whatever it was, you know, starting like middle school, high school, college, I taught people you know, how to make quick and easy meals that didn't require a lot of cleanup, but, you know, people who wanted to eat something other than ramen. And then when I got married, it was cooking for a small family. And I just was teaching people the whole time through, not thinking that that was a viable career, but more just helping people with a problem that they had. And when I got to my master's program, we were required to do an internship it sounds like, you know, the plot of a of a movie, but I had five kids under 12 and I did not see myself as particularly hireable. 
And my advisor just kept saying, y'all find something. Don't y'all just, y'all find something. <laughs> like keep looking on the lifter. And so there was this job as the head of the education station at the Union Square Green Market. And my job was to sort of set up the tent three days a week, give about, you know, four to seven school tours, close up the tent and, you know, be done. And it was like all of the things that I had been good at and that I loved came together. The issue that kept coming up was that people wanted to shop locally and to buy these sort of different, you know, breeds of vegetables that they had never seen at a grocery market and support biodiversity and support, you know, local ag, but they didn't know what to make with them. So I started giving recipes and then I just was like, well, I'm just going to open a place near here where I can do my own tours and then bring people back to cook and and get excited about making dinner because there's just so much correlation with cooking and personal and community and environmental health. So, you know, I found a spot, you know, how one does this. I mean, how one does this is having enough personal wealth to be able to rent a commercial space and invest in it and and make it viable. Otherwise, one does not <laughs> do this. But fortunately for me, I had the opportunity to do it. It was something that I think the community really loved and was excited about. We had an all-day cafe and an event space, and we were profitable within a year, which was cool. So what then was I it got called? to just, it was called Haven's Kitchen. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's how it all started. That's how it all started. So how did the sauces come about? I feel like I know the story here. It seems like it just comes together. But obviously, you know, what was that aha moment for you? You know, so we were happily kind of rolling along and it was like 2017. And, you know, again, I think if your ears are open, you start to sort of hear things repeat themselves. And if you hear them repeat themselves enough, you, you, at least in my case, that's a good indicator to go act on them. So a couple of things kept repeating themselves. One is the students in 2017 had meal kits for, you know, plated and blue apron started the same year, 2012, as I opened my little school. And they were just so dissatisfied. They were so unhappy with the meal kit experience. And they felt that they were promised joy and confidence, but they didn't get it. They got dinner on the table, but it didn't scratch the itch of agency and creativity that they were hoping for. So, you know, I dug in and I was like, well, what can we give our students that, you know, they can't mess up too much. They don't have too much work. And essentially they just kept saying, we're saving the sauces. I don't need little bags of cilantro. I don't need to like have someone tell me that I need to eat salmon instead of tofu tonight. But the sauce, that's hard work. You know, it's chopping, it's blending, it's roasting, it's mixing, it's cleanup. And and I'm not sure I'm, it's going to be good or balanced. So that was like, oh, okay. Well, what are the sauce options now? You know, and it's ranch dressing and marinara and barbecue. Why don't we have fresh sauces? Why don't we have global sauces? You know, again, this was 2017. Why are we teaching our students how to make things like, you know, 
romesco sauce and a Thai peanut sauce and a chimichurri and a salsa verde, but these things don't exist where they're shopping in the grocery. You know, why not? And why are they all loaded with sugar and preservatives? You don't need to do that, you know? So I started thinking around that. And then I also personally, you know, I got into the business because I wanted to help people feel great about cooking. And the business was amazing, but the business was primarily an events business where we were doing the cooking. We were teaching a lot of classes, but we were either, you know, hosting weddings or launch events, activations, you know, corporate retreats. And so I felt myself slipping a little bit away from that mission love, which was the root of everything for me in the first place. So, you know, it seemed to me that there, you know, 14 seats in a class and you can teach X number of classes per week. And all those people will cook more often, which is great. But if I created a product that could go into millions of people's houses and that product could somehow, and this was, I, QR codes weren't even really a thing, but I was like, maybe there's a QR code and it attaches to recipes and it attaches to cooking classes. And, you know, maybe we can sort of be in millions of people's houses getting them more excited about cooking and, you know, making food for themselves and their families. And and maybe that is a sauce that doesn't exist right now. And how do I make this more sustainable? I put it in a pouch. And how do I make it a better product? We do high-pressure pasteurization instead of hot fill and make it more, you know, make these flavors that maybe – people haven't heard of, and maybe they're a little bit nervous about, but we can make them more accessible to them. That's how the sauces started. That's awesome. I mean, it, it is really brilliant. It's like the, I mean, and the portion is perfect. The flavors are so good. And, you know, at home, personally, we struggle so much every day. It's like, dinner. What are we going to cook? I don't know. What do you want to have? I don't know. I just can't think about this again. What are you going to have? I don't know. And it's like this horrible like cycle that just never ends. It's a daily issue for every meal. No, you're not alone. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. And it's such a pain point. But you know, it's funny because I have my mother-in-law here and we've been using your sauces for the past couple days and every sauce I use, it's like the best because you can choose anything you want to make and you're like, Mm -hmm. well, how do I make this taste good? It's like we're having salmon, we're having chicken, what this, whatever. It's like, how do I even make this taste good? And then, oh, you're like, oh, I have all these sauces I can choose from. So you just like choose a flavor and any of them go with anything you make. It's kind of crazy. I mean, thank you. Yeah, that's the goal. It's been interesting because it's an asset and a liability as kind of all things are, you know, there, I think a lot of people are like, but what do I do with it? You know, what, but you can do anything with it. And (laughs) that's right. And, you know, I'm like, just put it on whatever, you know, and that's the thing. And I think, you know, it was the rookie error of too many you know, why in a pouch? Why in the refrigerated section? Why all of these innovative flavors that no one's ever heard of? You know, why so versatile? Those are things that, you know, any experienced entrepreneur would say, don't try to do all of them at the same time. I, you know, rookie, had no idea. And I was like, this solves 85 different problems. Yay. You know, there's nothing like it. It requires a lot of consumer education, but it also requires a lot of retailer education. And and that's just the the joy of creating a new category, basically. 
Right. So I guess what you're saying is and on the front of these sauces, it says, you know, sauce, dressing, marinade, right? So it's like, okay, there's so many different things. I mean, but even though it says dressing, I actually haven't used any of them in a salad yet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the tahini is a fantastic salad dressing. If you want to thin it out a little bit with a little lemon or olive oil, you can. The green goddess is obviously like, it's great as a salad dressing. And even the chimichurri, if you think about a Greek salad, it's olive oil, capers, oregano, parsley. I mean, that's yeah, what that's the most is. obvious one to me that would be really good in a salad. But I just use these all as like a sauce and they were each so amazing. I would say my favorites are the edamame green goddess for sure is a favorite. And then the um, the herb one, herby chimichurri is yeah, so good. It's really good. You can't go wrong with any of them though. And it, it's so nice to finally have like different flavors that you normally would never have. Yeah. Thank you. No, we're really, really proud of the products there. You know, we get so much love from people who's really, you know, their relationship with cooking has changed because of them. And, you know, the fun part about my job is that, I mean, there are a bunch of fun parts, but one really fun part is just, you know, people who haven't been teaching cooking for 25 years who come out with a sauce, they're approaching a singular problem. What we're approaching is what you noted before, that cooking isn't just the issue. It's not just, I'm not sure how to cook. It starts way further back. It's, I don't know what I feel like eating. I don't know who's coming. I don't know what dietary restrictions. I don't feel like shopping. I don't feel like thinking about it. It's so loaded. You know, and so people just, you know, it's just very easy to order in or, you know, have a bowl of cereal. Pizza. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, yeah. you know, what we try to do with the actual physical sauce, but also all of the content around it is take each one of those problems and have a solution for it. So, you know, we try to make thinking about it more fun and less stressful. And obviously, from thinking about it all the way through cleanup. You know, there are just these pain points all along the way that we're really intimately connected to because we know it so well. And that's what we're trying to solve for. And it just saves so much time. And I think about like even just the coconut cashew sauce we had last night, it's got this amazing hint of lime. And I'm thinking to myself, like, how long would it have taken me to try to create a coconut? It would just never happen. Like, I just would never do it. It's just too time consuming. I don't enjoy cooking. I don't enjoy reading recipes. I always mess it up. I don't want to have to deal with it. But you like, you know, I think it's something like 82% of American consumers want to have more global flavor in your home cooking and you want to experience, you know, some of these things that, you know, have traditionally been, you know, you have to kind of create a whole meal around it and a whole night and you have to plan for it. You know, this is just like, mm, if you put a lemongrass stock in front of a bunch of people, it's really interesting to see them just look at it with horror. You know, they, they don't know what to do with lemongrass and, it's a really cool flavor to play with. And it, it's in a lot of really delicious, you know, Southeast Asian cuisine that a lot of consumers really love. 
but the bridge is just too far for them, you know? So we just try to shorten the bridge. Consider it shortened, at least for my bridge. <laughs> it's completely shortened. I appreciate that. You know, I look like, you know, my mother-in-law is German and in her German, like, kind of accent, she's like, oh, it tastes like restaurant or something. You know, she, like, has it, like, uh, like she thinks it tastes like we just ordered from a restaurant. So thank exactly you for right. making me look like a pro when I am the farthest thing from it. You're welcome. <laughs> So you've had this business for a while. It started out as the kitchen and now you've got these amazing sauces. When did you launch the sauces? After that sort of like aha sort of couple of moments, that was January of 2017, really, where I just was like, all right, we're going to give this a go. And partly we're going to give this a go because we have such an incredible community of people who love this place. I mean, people loved the cooking school. Literally this weekend, I ran into two different people on the street who stopped me because of my tote bag. And they didn't even know we had a product. They just remember the cooking school. Yeah, it's awesome. And then I'm like, but we have a product and you can support us. So it's a little irritating sometimes. But so January of 2017, I sort of sat down with my team and I'm like, you know, we have been doing these activations, you know, Haven's Kitchen, the cooking school became sort of the place to go if you were a CPG company doing a launch. So if you were a hair product and you had a sea algae, we did a whole menu that had sea algae, you know, different types of sea products in it. Or if you were a supplement company when you were trying to talk about the different ingredients and how they came from nature, we would do all of these different dishes made with those, you know, ingredients. And we started just seeing all of these companies launching products and launching brands. And we were like, I think we can do this. You know, I mean, I think we've got an idea for a really good product. I was a professor now at NYU at the time. So I had access to Mintel and I saw that there was a big market with little innovation and a lot of opportunity. And so I said, okay, I think there's this thing in June called the Fancy Food Show. Let's give ourselves six months to figure out which recipes we want to finalize, figure out how we're going to preserve them. You know, we know we need at least 90 to 120 days of shelf life. What does that mean? You know, are the pouches viable? Because I didn't want to put things into glass or hard plastic because of my sustainability chops. You know, and let's get ourselves a little table at Fancy Food and, and just see what happens. And, you know, I mean, it sort of sounds like a dream, but the first guy, as I recall, who came over was this guy, John Lawson from Whole Foods, who was like, these are great. And then he tasted them and he's like, wow, like, what's the deal? And we sort of told him and he said, you know, how much are they going to cost? And I said, I don't know. And he said, who's your distributor? And I was like, no, I, what is a distributor? I mean, I had no idea. And fortunately for us, like Whole Foods really does with a lot of brands, they really kind of incubated us and got us from June of 17 with, you know, a couple of pouches that we filled with a piping bag to our first purchase order in March of 2018. And, you know, we did great. Then we went to the region and then we went global in 2020. And now we're in around 3000 stores across the country. And, you know, I had to close the cooking school in COVID, but fortunately, you know, I had a place to land, but I was also able to bring over a couple folks from that payroll over to the to the CPG side. And, you know, it, it, it's been a crazy ride, but a good one. 
And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You will be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. And speaking of incubator, I think uh, you guys participated in the Chobani food incubator. Can you talk about your experience there? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Hamdi, you know, was the brainchild of it. He really wanted Chobani to participate in giving early stage founders, you know, some of the lessons that he did not have and he had to learn the hard way. So, you know, it was a series of weeks of learning everything there was to learn about, you know, selling architecture and margins and food safety and innovation and marketing, you know, operations, quick lessons in margins and, you know, all the stuff that, you know, you learn as you go, but can save you thousands of dollars and hours and really prevent failure if you get those lessons early and he did so in exchange for like zero from us, you know, a lot of incubators, they want some equity or whatever. He didn't. I mean, some of the mentors from Chobani are still some of my most beloved friends and advisors. So incredible experience. That's awesome. So were you kind of part of that incubator program at the same time that Whole Foods was also kind of incubating the brand? A little bit after. So, you know, and Whole Foods, it was really John. He really deserves all the credit. And he wasn't going into the nitty gritty with us. He was just like, this and these pouches are going to tip over. You need to have them in a corrugate that we can just put on the shelf. We don't really need it to be, you know, USD certified organic because that's going to probably be price prohibitive, but it does need to be non-GMO verified, you know, things like that. And that got us from 2017 to, you know, 2018. And he also said, you know, these velocities are lapping your category. So if I were you, I would really consider going regional. And then when it was time to sort of go to Austin and get national distribution, he was helpful there too. The Chobani incubator was more broad and really, you know, helping us solidify a sales deck. And, you know, I'll give you one example. Federico, who was that time the head of sales, Chobani has interesting titles for their for their team. I don't remember what his exact title was. Now he's the CEO of Body Armor. But at the time, he kind of looked at me and he was like, you are so close to your consumer. You really understand home cooks and what they're looking for but you really don't understand the actual customer of your product, which is 
the dairy or the produce or, you know, the condom inspire at the grocery store. You're busy trying to prove how you're solving problems for the consumer. You need to solve problems for your customer. And it was a massive, massive unlock for me because that's when I started talking about incrementality and basket building and meal solutions for the retailer to solve their problems. I already knew that I was making something that would help consumers. But in this business, your job is to really help the customer. It was a huge mind shift for me. Huge. Interesting. And so what are some other, I guess, what's looking back, what are some of the biggest challenges? Like what's one of the big, big challenges that you had to overcome? You know, not just, I know COVID was a challenge for everyone. So that aside, what's been something that's been surprising, I guess, for you that you didn't expect in building this brand? You know, I would say the growth expectation and redefining what that means. You know, I kind of, my cohort, you know, of brands came up in a boom time, right? We came up when you were expected to minimally double your top line every year. And that was the expectation where, you know, the bottom line was a little bit less important contribution margin no one even discussed. You know, you wanted to have solidly good gross margins, but profitability wasn't wasn't the goal. The goal was just grow, grow, grow that top line. You know, I think for me personally, even before sort of this major correction has happened, you can't do that with a new category. You, you can't do that with a kombucha or a perfect bar, right? You can't do that with a refrigerated sauce in a pouch. Because the way that you double or triple that top line every year, part of it is, you know, velocity within the stores. But a lot of it is just growing your distribution really rapidly. Going from Whole Foods to Target to Costco to Walmart, you know, at a clip. And when you have a product that A, needs some explaining and B, doesn't have a natural home or a you know, consistent home in the retailers, it has to be a much more bespoke process and that takes time. And so you can't triple your, your top line every year for five years. I mean, that's hard to do anyway, but it's really hard to do when you're creating a new category. So I think for me, the big surprise was not being redefining, I guess, for myself, what does growth look like? You know, growth for me looks like getting better gross margins, getting a better contribution margin. That means getting better yield at production. That means, you know, net sales versus gross sales. That means velocity is ever, ever more important in the stores that we're in because we don't open new doors as quickly. And if we open the wrong retailer doors at this point in our career, we're not going to make any money there and it's going to be bad, you know? And so that was a big surprise, I think, because I thought I knew the game that I was playing. And then I realized that that might be the game for other categories. It is not the game for mine. Interesting. And how did you, I mean, because I'm sure with investors, they want the growth, 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 their distribution. And that's what they probably want to see when they're considering or evaluating the business for an investment, right? 
And so that how was fundraising, I guess, or are you no longer fundraising? Or like, how do you think about growth from a fundraising perspective if that's the path? Yeah. I mean, first off, whenever I talk about fundraising, I think it's really, really important for anyone who's starting to think about it to know that the companies that you're seeing that are raising gazillions of dollars and they look like they're doing it relatively easily, first off, they're not doing it relatively easily. Secondly, they are likely already in a group of people where they have access to capital. And it is really unfair and it is really inequitable, period. There is no bones about it. You know, minority-owned brands, female-founded brands, it's not just in tech, it's in CPG, are chronically underfunded, period. So, you know, it is very important to have a network of people early on who can write checks. Banks don't do it. You will not find a VC to do it. You need to have angels. And that's just, you know, for us, I was A, like, like I said, I was in a very privileged position from the get-go because I do have a network that includes some high net worth individuals. And I also had a network of people who loved Haven's Kitchen already. We had been there for you know six or seven years. We had die-hard fans that just wanted to be a part of anything we were doing. So, you know, my first chunk of money was, you know, a bunch of Haven's Kitchen loyalists, you know people that I knew from being sort of peripheral to this industry. And fortunately, you know, the founders of our X-Bar who I met through our co-packer who loved the product. And since then, you know, I have one fund in the business because they are not looking for, you know, that triple every year. They have deep conviction around what we're doing and how we're different. They are patient with their capital and they're structured a bit differently than a traditional VC. So, you know, for us, it hasn't been VCs tripping over themselves to invest in this. Um, it's been a lot of angels. I have a lot of founders and operators who are now investing in early stage brands that understand exactly the value of what we've created you know, I was able to, like I said, invest in myself because the cooking school was profitable. And like most other, you know, women entrepreneurs around the world, I took that and reinvested it into this business. And I think also, you know, I'm very clear on when I am talking to investors, you know, framing it as, you know, I could be XYZ, we could do XYZ, but here's why that's actually not the right path for this business. And as much as sort of this correction time is a bummer, it has actually proven a lot of my sort of theses, I guess, to be a little bit more sane. They sounded kind of old school and fuddy-duddy, I think, in, that, in the boom time. Now they sound wise. So what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to fundraise? You mentioned, you know, being privileged and having access to a network of angels or high net worth individuals. I agree with you. You know, it's really important to have this network. It's so hard. I remember fundraising for my first company and I knew no one. I didn't have wealthy family or friends to even ask for money from. And so 
you know, I was really lucky at that time I could go to conferences. It was a tech company. So it was a little different and easier, I think, to go to these events and, you know, build a network. You know, I went to Jason Calacanis's launch festival. I met a few of my first angel investors there. And I just feel like, where is that or what is that for entrepreneurs building a brand? You know, I'm curious. I know Expo West is huge for food and beverage, and then there's founder-made events, but there's a brilliant entrepreneur. He has built an amazing business. He started it kind of when he was 13. And He has great sales. He has great margins. You know, he's got something awesome and great vision. And he's done it all super bootstrapped. And he's looking to raise a million dollars. And I mean, I'm on my LinkedIn basically trying to hunt down anybody I can that this guy can talk to because that's the million dollar question. Literally, it's You can go to Expo West. It costs you money. You're certainly not getting a booth at Expo West until, you know, you have national distribution. That is a, otherwise it's just a marketing waste in my opinion. But, you know, yeah, you've got to network your face off. You've got to find people who will take the time to meet with you and introduce you to other people. And all of that is opportunity cost to the business. And, you know, angels write, you know, $15,000 checks, you know, that's not going to add up to a million. You need really many more early, early stage, pre-seed, seed, CPG focused funds that make it a priority to invest in underinvested founders. Because until that happens, we're not going to have the innovation or the equity that we need in this business. My advice is that you know, acknowledge that it sucks and that it's likely not you or the way that you're pitching or the way your deck looks or anything. It's just them's the breaks and you got to go find people who do have resources in these networks who can be helpful. Yeah. I think there's a lot of funds I've found that, you know, focus on consumer after you've had a million in revenue, right? But it's like, what about before a million in revenue? Like, to me, there's not much of a difference. No, there isn't. And even, you know, the ones that are sort of in that 1 million sweet spot, they're few and far between. It's like anything else. It starts at the beginning of the bud. You know, a tree's health depends a lot on the origin of that seed, if you think about it, right? And we have an ecosystem where money begets money, where you have companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars pre-revenue because they are labeling themselves as quote unquote tech companies or, you know, God knows what, because a group of people and they usually look the same and they've usually all gone to the same colleges and they've all, you know, had the same friends and networks are all excited about them. Meanwhile, there are all these fantastic entrepreneurs who, you know, there are plenty of people who are willing to give these people mentorship, but they're not willing to give them money. Right. And, and we don't need more mentorship. We have a lot of mentors. We just need cash. You know, again, I'm in a really special spot because, you know, my company might not have existed if I didn't have that sort of, you know, privilege and resource going into it. And that's not to take away from the hard work that my team has done or that I've done. It's just the reality, you know, and it's sad to me to think of the innovation that's going to get lost because people can't raise that money. And then they kick themselves because they feel like it's their fault. 
And it's just not. These guys are no smarter or better than you are, is my advice. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's just made way more fun to be creative and start something and build something from scratch. I think it's more rewarding as well. So how did you come up with the name Haven, Haven's Kitchen? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. If I was starting a packaged food company today, I don't know that I would necessarily call it Haven's Kitchen, you know, but then I'm kind of like, well, that's cool then because then I know that I'm not being super like on trend. You know, it's not like a one syllable word that means nothing that, you know, sounds fun, but it is a little bit long and it's long on a logo. The idea really was, well, first of all, it was a little play on, you know, Hell's Kitchen. So the original cooking school was on 17th in Flatiron. And I wanted it to be sort of like, you know, a little bit play on, you know, neighborhoods in New York. But I think more was, you know, ever since I started teaching people cooking, you know, again, it's not just like, I don't know how to cook. It's oh my gosh, this is so scary. And the kitchen is like a terrifying place for me. And there was a lot of like unreasonable fear and loathing around the kitchen and cooking. And, you know, I wanted it to be a safe haven. You know, in places all around the world, the kitchen is an altar. It For me as a kid that didn't have much of like a a family life, you know, I would watch the Brady Bunch or eight is enough or, you know, any of those shows with like big families and everyone was always in the kitchen huddled around the table and it should be a haven. It should be a place where everyone can relax and express themselves and feel confident. And so, you know, that was really the mission behind the school was If I can get people to enjoy this, they'll do it more. And in doing it more, they'll make themselves and their communities and the environment healthier. And that's awesome, you know? So it had to be kind of a part of the name to have something that made people feel automatically like they could breathe. And how big is your team now? And how do you think about your leadership role, you know, as founder and CEO, as you build out the business? My team, I think is 10. Sometimes I forget to count me. I don't, I don't know. I honestly, to have to like count and that would take time. So I think it's 10-ish. My leadership, you know, what's fun is every step of the way you are able to bring people with more experience into the business. So, you know, the way that we are right now, I had a, I have a head of operations who is just amazing. She's just a great project manager, but she also has great, you know, co-packer management skills. She understands how to build innovation pipelines. She understands how to set up, you know, new co-packers and new products. And, you know, that was all just knowledge that we got with this one person coming into the business last year, which was amazing. My head of sales strategy, you know, he's been doing this for a long time. He understands the language. It is a very strange language, this grocery retail world that we're in. And he understands how to look kind of 12 months, 16 months ahead and build out kind of toward that. You know, my head of marketing is someone who actually, she was my buyer at Fresh Direct when we first went on 
Fresh Direct in 2018, which is an e-com grocer. And she has just continuously educated herself and gotten the knowledge for the next level of the business, which is remarkable. So my leadership team is amazing. Right now we're in a place where everyone is just like pushing the boulder up the mountain. Everyone is putting equal weight into pushing that boulder, which feels really good for the whole team. Because it's very obvious when someone is kind of like, my finger's on the boulder, but I'm not really putting my all into it. Right now, everyone is just pushing, which is really fun. I think my job as the leader is to just consistently provide people with the vision and the strategy, the context of why your job as XYZ matters to this larger strategy and what success looks like. You know, it's making sure that everyone is clear on the stuff that would maybe create static and prevent them from just doing an incredible job. And, and it, you know, it's great. I mean, I've learned a lot about myself and about what I need and where I am really strong as a leader and where I need work and what I like from my team, you know, and the more that you do it and the more that you know yourself, you know, the, I think the better you are at it. Where are you really strong in your leadership and where do you feel like you need work? I think I'm strong in seeing around corners. I think I'm strong at, like I said, sort of that social listening piece. I was always good at listening. I think that I listened to too much for the first five to eight years of my leadership. And it would get confusing. It was a little catalytic for people. You know, I'd be like, well, this person said this, so let's do this. And this person said this, so let's do this. I think where I'm strong is I'm really good at gathering a lot of seemingly disparate data points and bringing them into, you know, a thesis. And then it's just a question of, all right, how do we now go and tactically nail this? And that means having very, very clear expectations and goals and not changing them too often, being flexible enough that if something, you know, massive changes, being able to adapt and pivot. So I think I'm good at that. I think that my whole team trusts my instincts and instincts are just experience and, you know, a little bit of empathy and social listening, right? And that's all instincts really are. So they trust them. I think where I need work, I would say is I say that I want to be patient. I say that, you know, this takes time and, you know, I don't like to measure ourselves up against anyone else. But, you know, I think where I need work is really part of the downside of being good at listening is that, again, like I said, I might listen too much. You know, I see a lot of what's going on around me. I'm, my guess is that my team can sense when I'm a little insecure or I'm a little nervous. You know, part of that is okay because it makes me, you know, just human. But part of it, if I'm nervous and insecure, the chances of them not feeling nervous and insecure are pretty low. So I really want to work on that resilience and that head down 
just trusting myself and my team to do what we know, because I do know, but you know, sometimes it's hard. Works in progress, right? Like we're all trying to figure it out and we all have our strengths and weaknesses and things that we're trying to work on and appreciate you sharing that and being vulnerable to share, you know, what that that's something that you're working on. I think I know that every leader is working on something. It's it's really tough running a business. I'd say it's like it takes so much enormous personal growth. You have to move basically and evolve as fast as your business is personally and professionally. And it's it's a lot to keep up with. I think, you know, the cool part is, is that when you really look at it, your strengths and your weaknesses are basically two different sides of the same exact trait. Exactly. It's so you know? true. And so, yeah. You know, every time I'm like, well, here's a weakness. I'm also like, okay, but on the flip side, literally, it's also a strength. It's just about mitigating. You know, it's not about changing anything entirely. It's about just, you know, learning how to sort of mitigate the downside and maximize the opportunity. And so, you know, if you can look at it all as sort of that type of puzzle, then you don't add this secondary, ugh, I suck, ugh, I did this, ugh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be running this company and maybe I should just go, you know, I don't know, to the beach. <laughs> right. But the person who's sitting on the beach is not the type of person who's going to start a brand, create Mm-mm. a kitchen, commercial kitchen, you know, no one, no. that's just not the same personality. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. For better or for worse. You, you exactly. Know? take yourself with you. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, listening too much means you care a lot about what you're doing. So you're listening to smart people give advice about things that they probably have more experience or whatever. And so I mean, I'm similar in that way where I like I take a lot of what people say into consideration. And I think it's like a good and a bad thing. Because like you said, like you, you can learn a lot, but then you can also these people can be wrong. Like they're not always or their right. experience worked for them in that particular time in their particular category with their particular set of circumstances. And that's wonderful. It might not apply to you. Yeah. And then of course, if you're building a business and you're really passionate about it and you want to win because maybe you're competitive, of course, you're going to be a little insecure or think about what are other people doing? And oh, this person's growing this business faster than I am. And why is that? It's like hard. Of course, we're all going to be, if we're competitive people, comparing ourselves because that's just what you do when you're competing, (laughs) right? So again, same coin. I love that you say that because I think that's just so true. Before we wrap up here, do you have any final advice for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, those that are currently operating businesses, as well as those thinking about taking the leap into entrepreneurship? And then also what else, what's next for Haven's Kitchen? I'll go in reverse, if that's okay. What's next is we have a new product line coming out in January. We have some amazing retail partners that we're going to be launching it with, which is just a testament of the relationships that we've built with some of these retailers, which I'm very proud of. It's shelf stable. We can have end caps. It's very exciting. We don't have to be in the refrigerator. It's got some shelf life, but same, you know, heart and mission, global flavors, better for you making meals, you know, easier and less stressful for people looking to, you know, cook a little more, just enjoy their food a little bit more. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I would say, you know, the advice is the whole thing about making a packaged good. I mean, it's probably the same in any, anything 
you know, whether it's a service or, you know, some technology, the, the thing is you really need to have a group of people who have a problem, who are looking for a solution that they are willing to spend on repeatedly. If your product or service that you're thinking about doesn't have a very clear group of those people, how you are different from the other folks trying to solve those problems. And those people need to come back over and over and over again. Then I would think very seriously about going back to the drawing board. Because I think a lot of the last several years has been this sort of false brand-focused misunderstanding of consumer packaged goods. And it's been very sort of like, there are people out there that want to be a part of my cool kid club. And D2C gave everyone a little bit of that like fake, you know, success. But the game is not, if I make this, people will want to be a part of us. It's how am I helping someone in their everyday life feel better and have an easier time? And if you can't answer that really clearly, I don't know that you're going to have a lot of success. The other issue is that more than ever, you cannot count on volume or growth of distribution to solve margin problems. You need to come out of the gate with at least like a 60, 65% product margin in the food business because you're going to spend 20% on trade and then you have GNA and all of that. And you cannot expect to be profitable for at least a few years. There are stories of the ones that are, yay to them. It is very, very unusual. So, you know, thinking that you're going to get better with your margins because of volume is just flawed. It's, again, it's going to be very, very hard not to find yourself in a sticky situation. And so I would say those two things, you know, if you are really solving a problem and there is a consumer who's willing to spend on it repeatedly, and if you can make that solution at a margin that's, you know, good and solid that gives you, you know, maybe it'll take a few years to get, you know, to break even, then I give you the go ahead. (laughs) Then you have my blessing. Allison says green light. Green light. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in there. You know, part of the problem solving is that, you know, it was a rookie error on my part. Again, like I, I didn't consider so much the way that people shop for condiments. I was very like, oh, they'll see this and they'll know, even if it's next to something random, what to do with it. You can't change a lot of consumer behavior. And if you want to do that, you are going to have to spend a lot of money working on that. So don't try to change something. Try to create something that, you know, And there are very few things that need that much improvement, you know, if you think about it. So be very thoughtful about getting into this business, I would say. A lot of work. Yeah. Thank you so much, Allison. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story and advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.